You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 291, the Mohawk Valley Raids of 1781. We last left the Mohawk Valley of New York back in episode 270 with the Battle of Stone Arabia and Clocks Field. Raids from British loyalists and Iroquois subsided over the winter, but had not given up on driving the Americans out of upstate New York. On February 5th, 1781, New York Governor George Clinton wrote to the Continental Congress about the New York frontier. He said over 330 people had been killed or taken prisoner in 1780. Six forts and hundreds of houses and barns had been destroyed. The enemy had driven off hundreds of cattle and destroyed most of the grain fields. Many people, of course, had already fled the region, but those who remained were under no illusions that the spring would not bring another round of brutal raids and combat. By March of 1781, small Indian war parties began raiding farms and small settlements. These quick hit-and-run operations were designed to inflict harm, and then the attackers disappear before a counterattack could come. In April, Governor Clinton appointed Colonel Marinus Willett as commander of the New York militia on the frontier. I've mentioned Colonel Willett before, As someone who doesn't get a lot of mention in history books, I think he really had a big role in maintaining New York during the Revolution. Willett was born on Long Island in Jamaica, Queens. His family had lived in New York for over a century. One of his ancestors, Thomas Willett, was the first English mayor of New York. Although Marinus was raised a Quaker, he left home at the age of 18 to form a militia company during the French and Indian War. Then Lieutenant Willett served in a provincial regiment commanded by Oliver Delancey. He was part of a British attack on Fort Ticonderoga and several other actions in French Canada. And after falling ill during that war, Willett convalesced at Fort Stanwix, which was under construction at the time. By 1775, Willett was living in New York City. Although most of his family were loyalists, Marinus joined the Sons of Liberty. That year, he attacked a British unit who was trying to remove guns from the city's arsenal. He took a commission as a captain in the new Continental Army and participated in the Quebec campaign. In 1777, Willett found himself back at Fort Stanwix, this time as an active duty officer, under the command of then-Colonel Peter Gansevoort. This was just before British General Burgoyne began his attack into New York. As part of that attack, British Colonel Barry St. Leger besieged Fort Stanwix. During the nearby Battle of Oriskany, Willett was the officer who led the raid on the enemy camps, capturing most of their baggage, and that in turn caused the British to lose most of their Indian allies and eventually retreat back to Canada, thus leaving General Burgoyne without the expected reinforcements. Once Burgoyne's army surrendered at Saratoga, 
will it return to the main Continental Army under Washington? He fought at the Battle of Monmouth. He returned to New York in 1779 to participate in the Sullivan Campaign, which destroyed Iroquois towns and villages that were supporting raids from Canada. By this time, Willett was a colonel of the 5th New York Regiment in the Continental Army. Due to dwindling enlistments, the five New York regiments were consolidated into just two in 1780. This meant that three of the five New York colonels were going to lose their commands. At the same time, New York State needed a military leader. As I said, things were getting pretty desperate up in the Mohawk Valley. As the spring of 1781 began, Iroquois leaders under Joseph Brandt and others began raiding the region. In early spring, raiders captured 30 militiamen who were caught outside of Fort Stanwix, which at this time was also called Fort Schuyler. Shortly thereafter, a flood and then a fire damaged much of the fort. Some sources indicate that the flood destroyed much of the fort's provisions at a time when the garrison was already running pretty tight on rations. The fire was either an accident or deliberately set by members of the garrison. The garrison was starving, and some may have hoped that the fire would allow them to abandon the fort and go somewhere else that had food. As I said, no one's really sure exactly what happened, but if that's what they were hoping for, it worked. The remainder of the garrison abandoned what was left of the fort and retreated downriver to Fort Herkimer. At Governor Clinton's request, George Washington approved Colonel Willett's transfer to New York. He needed to rally the locals to put up a defense at a time when the main Continental Army was looking in the other direction at New York City, and most of the fighting was taking place in the South. As such, those in upstate New York would be obligated to defend themselves against the raids from Canada. After years of raids, the locals were as prepared as possible, a string of 24 forts in the area provided protection. Some of these forts were simply reinforced houses that offered a minimum of protection. Still, it was usually enough to discourage a small Indian raiding party from attacking. Residents would run to the nearest fort when they received word of raiders in the area. Most of the properties had been destroyed by this time, and raiders were frequently destroying buildings that had already been rebuilt after previous raids. At Governor Clinton's request, Colonel Willett received orders to take command of the state troops and militia in May of 1781. General Robert Van Rensselaer, the previous commander, took heavy criticism for his weak leadership at the battles of Stone Arabia and Clocks Field in the fall of 1780 and had been removed from command. The overall commander of the Northern Department at this time was Continental Brigadier General James Clinton the brother of Governor George Clinton. General Clinton mostly stayed in Albany with his brother. He was focused more on obtaining supplies and left the fieldwork in the Mohawk and Schoharie Valleys to Colonel Willett. General Washington pulled almost all Continental soldiers out of the region as part of his attempt to gather up an army that could threaten New York City. The only outside support came after Washington requested that some Massachusetts militia support Willett in New York, but that request only came in late summer. So Willett was pretty much on his own when he got there. He arrived in late June and set up his headquarters at Fort Plain, which was also known at the time as Fort Rensselaer. Rather than keep small bodies of militia scattered across the region, Willett tried to gather together a militia army of several hundred men 
who could be on the move regularly to confront enemy raiding parties. When within a few weeks of his arrival at Fort Plain, Willett would face his first major challenge. Over the course of the winter and spring, most of the attacks consisted of smaller bands of Tories and Iroquois attacking isolated homes or people caught out in their fields. On July 9th, Willett dispatched Captain Lawrence Gross with 35 militiamen on a routine reconnaissance south of the fort toward the village of New Dorlac, later called Sharon Springs. Later that same morning, Willett noticed smoke rising from the southeast in the direction of Currytown. He dispatched Captain Robert McKean with 16 men to investigate and collect militia along the way. McKean's force arrived at Currytown, about 10 miles from the fort, to find the village had been plundered and burned to the ground. His men really couldn't do anything except douse the remaining fires. The attack on Currytown was not the result of a small raiding party, though. A larger force of 300 Iroquois and Loyalists, under the command of Lieutenant John Dockstadter, had ridden down from Montreal to raid the area. Dockstadter had lived in this area before the war, but had been forced to flee because of his Loyalist sentiments. Dockstadter had some relationship to Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk war chief and British officer. According to some accounts, and records are really spotty on this point, Dockstadter may have been married to a sister or niece of Captain Brandt. Some accounts indicate that Dockstadter was also part Iroquois himself. Whatever his background, Dockstadter was a committed loyalist and an experienced raider who knew the area well. During the attack on Currytown, the raiders killed and scalped several locals and took a few others prisoner. They plundered all the buildings, then burned whatever they could not carry off with them. Once complete, the raiders rode southwest toward the town of New Dorlac. After dousing the fires at Currytown, Captain Gross tasked two of his local scouts to follow the trail. The men determined that the raiders had set up camp in a swamp near New Dorlac. Since the raiding party was about 300 men, and Gross had only about 30, he couldn't do anything on his own. He dispatched riders back to Fort Plain to inform Colonel Willett. Gross then set up camp along Bowman's Creek, which was between Fort Plain and the enemy camp at New Dorlac. Upon receiving news of the enemy's location, Willett put out a call for anyone who could join for an attack near Currytown. He gathered as many men as he could from Fort Plain and moved overnight to surprise the enemy. Willett's force, along with those of Gross and McKean, arrived at the enemy camp at about dawn on July 10th. The force of mostly Iroquois warriors outnumbered the smaller force of about 150 militia that Willett had been able to muster on short notice. Even so, he was determined to fight. Willett sent about 10 of his men toward the enemy camp, where they fired on the enemy and then retreated. As expected, the warriors jumped on their horses and tried to ride down on the small group. The Iroquois were so fast that they managed to kill two of the retreating militia. The rest, however, rode the pursuers into an ambush that had been set up by Willett. The militia fired a volley into the warriors. Although they took casualties, the warriors rushed the enemy lines. Willett had kept back 50 of his soldiers, who fired a second volley into the attackers. The two lines continued to fight for about 90 minutes before the Loyalists and Iroquois retreated. Captain McKean attempted to pursue the retreating enemy, 
but almost immediately took two balls in his chest, mortally wounded. His son Samuel attempted to come to his aid and was also shot through the mouth. The enemy quickly disappeared without anyone attempting to pursue right away. After Willard's force did advance, they found the enemy camp at the swamp. The enemy had gone, but had abandoned most of their equipment and the plunder they had taken from Currytown. Willett later reported that the Loyalist force had about 50 men killed or wounded. Willett lost five men killed and nine wounded. The Loyalists also had killed most of the prisoners that they had taken at Currytown after the encounter with Willett's force. Several prisoners survived long enough to be recovered, but most died of their injuries within days. After the battle, Lieutenant Colonel Volkert Veter arrived on the scene with three regiments of Tryon County Militia. The militia had missed the battle, but helped to deal with the dead and wounded. While the battle at New Dorlac turned out to be the largest fight of the summer, it was far from the only one, and locals were always on alert for the next raid. Only a few weeks after the battle at New Dorlac, a Tory named Adam Chrysler from Butler's Rangers led a group of Tories and Iroquois in a raid a few miles further southeast, near their modern town of Gallupville. They attacked several houses, killing and capturing locals. Days later, on August 6th, Loyalist Donald MacDonald led a force of 60 Indians and Loyalists to some settlements that were within a few miles of Fort Herkimer. Those who could fled to Fort Herkimer, but Johann Christian Schell chose to make a stand at his home. He had fortified the home to prepare for just such an attack. When the raid came, two of his sons were captured while working in the field. Shell made it back to his home, where he, his wife, and his six other sons put up a defense. The family managed to hold off the attackers for hours as they tried to burn down the home or force entry. MacDonald personally rushed the door and attempted to force it open with a crowbar. The defenders, however, wounded him and then dragged him inside. Several natives rushed the house to put their guns through loopholes in the walls. Mrs. Shell took an axe and destroyed their barrels by bashing them in and bending them. At dusk, Shell feared the cover of darkness might aid the enemy. Then, from the second floor of his home, he shouted that he saw a relief force coming from Fort Dayton. He began shouting commands to the militia to help locate the attackers. As it turned out, there was no rescue party. Shell just made it up. But his shouting managed to unnerve the attackers, who then fled into the woods. They left behind their commander, the wounded MacDonald, who was in, still inside the house. And he was taken to Fort Dayton the following day, but there he died from his wounds. Following the attack, Patriots found 11 dead and 6 more wounded in the area around the house. Shell's captured sons were taken to Montreal. After their eventual release, when the war ended, they reported that another nine attackers had died on the march back to Canada. No one in the house was killed or wounded. Shell continued to farm his land. However, a year later, another raid came and caught him working in the fields. This time, he and one of his sons were killed. As the summer came to an end, Walter Butler the son of John Butler, commander of Butler's Rangers, led another large force of six or seven hundred Tories and Iroquois into the Mohawk Valley. I've mentioned Butler before. He grew up in the area, but of course was forced to flee because of his loyalist sympathies. 
He had been tried in New York and sentenced to death before escaping back to Canada. Butler was among the most active Tory leaders and had become particularly notorious following his role in the Cherry Valley Massacre in 1778. The Loyalists came back to the same area of the Mohawk Valley in October, including another attack on Currytown to destroy anything that had been rebuilt since the July Raid. The raiders then moved north toward Johnstown. Back at Fort Plain, Colonel Willett received word of the new raid. Once again, he raised as many men as he could and quickly set out in pursuit. Willett managed to raise only about 400 militia, so the enemy outnumbered his force. Even so, the Patriot militia caught up with the raiders around Georgetown on October 25th. Willett divided his force, sending a portion of it in a flanking move to get around the enemy's rear. The remainder advanced directly toward the enemy across an open field. Willett's men also had one small field cannon. The fight raged for some time as the two sides charged one another. At one point, the militia making up the Patriots' right flank fled in a panic. Willett attempted to rally his men as the Tories took advantage of the confusion. Just as a Tory victory looked imminent, the flanking force appeared in the Tory rear and threw the whole battle into confusion. The fighting turned into small groups of men fighting each other as the British eventually withdrew to higher ground. Over the next few days, the Tories tried to withdraw, moving west back toward Canada. Willett and the militia pursued them. At one point, Butler tried to ford a river when a force of Patriot militia and Oneida warriors caught up with him. Butler turned to taunt his pursuers when one of the Oneida shot him off his horse with a rifle. The warrior then charged into the river with his tomahawk to finish the job. According to one story, Butler pleaded for mercy, but the warrior simply shouted, Remember Cherry Valley, and finished him off. Now, if you ask me, this story was almost certainly made up after the fact. A more likely account says that Butler was shot in the head and died instantly. The Oneida warrior then scalped his dead body and took his coat, which were later sold to somebody, I think, in Albany, New York. However, by the time of the scalping, Walter Butler was almost certainly dead. As it turned out, this was the last large-scale raid of the war. Shortly thereafter, word of Yorktown arrived, and both sides settled down and waited for the end. Next week, we're going to return to South Carolina, where the South Carolina militia under Thomas Sumter continue to contest for control of the state and force the British to be bottled up even more tightly in and around Charleston. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. We are part of the Airwave Media Network. I want to thank my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, and Michael Mulhern. And to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, TJ Walker, and Joe Kelsey. Welcome also to Josh Thibodeau, who joined the Privy Council level at Subscribestar, I set up Subscribestar as an alternative to Patreon because I know some people dislike Patreon for various reasons. Personally, I prefer Patreon since they take a smaller share in fees. That's my preference. 
But of course, you're welcome to use either platform, and I greatly appreciate your support. I also want to thank Dave Schaefer for his generous one-time gift via PayPal. I really appreciate everyone who can contribute. And I also want to remind everyone, if times are tough and you can't make a contribution, I want to remind you that you can actually help me just by doing your online holiday shopping. If you shop at Amazon, please start your shop by clicking on a book link to Amazon from my blog or website. Even if you don't buy the book, I get credit and a small commission for everything you do buy at Amazon during that session. It's a great way to support this podcast at no cost to you other than what you were going to spend anyway. Later this week, we are going to have our live Zoom roundtable for December. The event will be taking place on Wednesday, December 13th, 2023 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. This week marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, and that will be the topic of our discussion. If you'd like to get notifications for these sorts of events, please join my mailing lists. That's where I send out all this information. You can join from the links that are on my blog and website. You can also just email me for the Zoom link if you don't want to be on the mailing list. The event's 100% free, and it gives you an opportunity to interact with me and your fellow fans of the American Revolution podcast. This week, we covered the summer and fall of 1781 in upstate New York. The fighting in this area was every bit as ruthless as in the Carolinas. Attackers had no compunctions about killing civilians, including women and children. This was a very basic fight for survival. Part of this week's episode covered the death of Walter Butler. He was a Tory officer and the son of the commander of Butler's Rangers. As Americans, we tend to think of patriots as the good guys and the Tories as the bad guys. But history really isn't that black and white. Many men, like Walter Butler whose initial instinct was loyalty to their British government, suffered greatly for that opinion. He and his father were thrown off their lands, which were confiscated by the Patriots. Butler was arrested and sentenced to death, only to escape by bribing a guard. It's certainly understandable why he maintained a strong sentiment against the Patriots, who had taken everything from him and his family. That said, it's pretty hard to justify the massacre of women and children, as he's accused of doing at Cherry Valley. Had he survived the war, Butler certainly would not have been welcomed back in New York, but would have spent the remainder of his life in exile. Whatever we think of his politics, Walter Butler is a man who fought and died for his principles. I also discuss Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett, the Continental officer who took command of the New York militia in 1781. After the war, Willett returned to New York City. He served as a sheriff for a time and also as an advisor to Governor Clinton. He played a prominent role in President Washington's efforts to sign a treaty with the Muscogee tribe in the 1790s. He was offered a commission as a general during the Indian Wars in the Northwest Territory, but he declined out of his personal opposition to that war. Years later, Willett served as mayor of New York City and also ran a losing campaign for governor against DeWitt Clinton, Governor George Clinton's nephew. Willett also helped finance some of the first hospitals for the poor in New York City. So you can see he really is an interesting guy. And if you want to read more, my book recommendation this week is Marinus Willett, Savior of the Mohawk Valley, 
by A.J. Barry and James F. Morrison. This is a rather short book, less than 200 pages. It was also a straight-to-paperback book. I think that had more to do with the obscurity of the topic than the quality of authorship. The authors, Barry and Morrison, have written a number of books related to the region during the American Revolution, and they seem to do a very good job with them. This book relies heavily on Willett's own writings and other contemporary sources. It was first published in 2014. So if you want to read more about Marinus Willett, especially in his Revolutionary War activities, you'll want to get Marinus Willett, Savior of the Mohawk Valley. I also mentioned that Willett was stationed at Fort Plain. Personally, I've visited the Fort Plain Museum a couple of times. They hold an annual conference on the American Revolution. This year it's going to be held in June. It's a great event, and the Fort Plain Bookstore has one of the best selections of Revolutionary War books around. So, you might want to think about your summer plans and visiting the American Revolution Conference at Fort Plain this summer. My online recommendation is a book about Fort Plain, The Story of Old Fort Plain and the Middle Mohawk Valley by Nelson Green. This book, admittedly, it only devotes a few pages to the events that I discussed this week, but it does give an interesting history of the fort and the surrounding region. It was first published in 1915, so it is public domain and available on archive.org. As always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, if the British Revolution was in the 1600s, then why did King George have political power during the American Revolution? Also, why was there British royalty even after the British Revolution? Well, not all revolutions do away with kings. A revolution simply refers to some major change. Many revolutions are brought about by war and result in a new government, and since most of the governments had been monarchies around this time, a great many revolutions have been fought over the last few centuries to get rid of them. But as I said, a revolution does not necessarily get rid of a monarchy. I think your reference to the British Revolution is a reference to the Glorious Revolution that took place in England in 1688. Parliament at that time forced King James II to abdicate and put his daughter Mary on the throne along with her Dutch husband William. The revolution at that time was not about abolishing the monarchy. It was about getting rid of a king who seemed a little too pro-Catholic for most Englishmen. The revolution in this case simply put a different monarch in power. Now, one reason it is considered a revolution is that it marked an important move from a powerful monarchy to a bit of a more figurehead monarchy than Britain has today. But much of the change from an all-powerful monarch to the figurehead we have today really happened over a much longer period of time. The Glorious Revolution itself resulted in the passage of the English Bill of Rights, which established specific powers for Parliament. And some have argued the revolution also moved away from the idea of divine right of kings toward a more modern social contract theory of governing. But there was no movement to do away with the monarchy altogether. The king still had an important but limited role in government. It was probably, however, revolutionary in the sense that Parliament was taking a much more prominent role in governing, even that was not new since these fights had been going on since before the English Civil War several decades earlier 
and can probably even be traced back to at least the Magna Carta in the 13th century. The English Bill of Rights that was the result of this glorious revolution is something that many of the leading colonist protesters held up as why they were fighting for their rights as Englishmen in the American Revolution. Now, following the Glorious Revolution, King William and Queen Mary still played a prominent role in governing, as did their successor, Queen Anne. Kings did not begin to play a much reduced role until a few decades later when King George I took the throne. George I, of course, was a German. He did not speak English, and he really had no interest in governing Britain. He only spent part of the year on the island. Similarly, his son George II was also not a native English speaker and seemed more interested in his German principality in Europe. So while Britain did have this period of several decades of an uninterested monarch who left governing to others, that was really a matter of choice rather than a hard and fast rule of government. When George III took the throne, he began to assert a more active interest in governing. Tories in Britain supported a more politically active king and were very happy about this. Whigs, we'll say, were less than enthusiastic, but even they did not outright oppose the king's involvement in policymaking. After George III took blame for losing the American Revolution, sorry, spoiler alert there, a political movement in Britain moved more firmly toward making the monarchy a much more ceremonial role. Even now, though, this is a matter of practice. The monarch still maintains on paper a great many powers that it opts not to exercise. Of course, one reason it doesn't exercise those rights is that it probably doesn't have the political power to do so, and there would probably be a popular backlash if the king did try to engage in those political powers. Doing so today would most likely result in the end of a monarchy in Britain. If you have a question you'd like me to answer please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.